0: Wednesday night I mentioned to the church in our Bible study that there's a mega church down in Atlanta that last year opened up their Mother's Day service with a Shania Twain song, a bunch of women singing, I don't know what the song was. And I thought, God help us if we go to church and the music doesn't point us to Jesus Christ. And I, I am thankful. I love that song. It's my favorite song that Rick sings. Um, when, when we sing songs at this church, all of those of you that play and sing your music, the songs you choose, they ought to point people to Jesus Christ. Well, that's the whole purpose. That's the reason we're here. Um, I don't, I don't like the Christian, so-called Christian songs today they are written that point people to me. Uh, I like it to point me to Jesus. I, I, like, I like Christ-centered music and I love that song, uh, well, that's my little plug for music, philosophy, and church. Exodus chapter number fifteen. Exodus chapter number fifteen. We started this series uh, last week, or uh, looking at, uh, or two weeks ago, looking at this series called "Behold, Your God," and the need that you and I have for a fresh view of God and and a, vit- a vital, growing relationship with Him and not allowing the world to diminish the greatness of God. Uh, and this morning, I, I, I would like to direct your attention to his holiness. The very first week, we talked about the importance of thinking and contemplating God and taking time to do that. And I, I'm going to encourage you all through this series to make that part of your daily routine, your daily prayer time and, and Bible study and personal time with God Make a time available where you can just contemplate, God, meditate on these things. It's a biblical practice. Meditation for the Christian ought not to be the Eastern meditation that says empty your mind. Meditation for the Christian, we ought to fill our mind. We ought to fill our mind with thoughts of God and his works and his word. We are looking today at this one who... The scripture says is holy, holy, holy. You're familiar with post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. They're changing that. They're, they're going from PTSD to PTSI to make it not a disorder but an injury, a post-traumatic stress injury. A lot of times that happens to folks who have, uh, They uh, in, in fact, post-traumatic stress is more common than we Realize A lot of times that happens to folks who are involved, per se, in a bad car accident. Uh, there's a bit of post-traumatic stress to that, like some anxiety getting back into uh, the vehicle the next time, especially if you were the driver in that car. Um, if you have survived uh, a horrific natural disaster, you're in a house that is destroyed by a tornado and somehow you escaped, uh, you escaped death in that house, that's, that's pretty traumatic to be in a house that is there and then be on a slab where the house is gone. There's post-traumatic stress, and sometimes those, that stress that follows an event or an incident in our life, sometimes that doesn't go away. We don't recover from that very well, and that leads to the PTSD or PTSI, and it's a long-term, it's a long-term struggle with that stress. And I'll, and I'll say this to you it's a real thing there are a lot of people arguing today that this is not a it's 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 an imagine it's an imaginated thing it's really not uh, there's there's a lot to it um, we can have a biblical talk on it sometime if you'd like but there's this this event that takes place in your life and for a long time after that you're you're affected by it I've talked to our police officers. I, I we do a talk to uh, police officers uh, in training on dealing with post traumatic stress and moral injury and things like that. I've dealt with uh, I've dealt with police officers involved in officer involved shootings, or citizens involved in crimes, horrific crimes, or fatal accidents or serious injury accidents. And you deal with things like this, and you talk to you talk to. Po- po- Folks uh, about this. Um, I think of our missionary Harold Pierce, who's a U.S. Army vet, and a lot of his ministry today involves not only in his in his church ministry, but he deals with a lot of vets who are struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder or injury. It's this event that takes place in your life and it affects you in an ongoing way. Can I flip that to a positive? And talk to you today about what R.C. Sproul called the trauma of holiness. It's encountering a holy God in such a way that it impacts you for the rest of your life. And there's story after story after story in the scripture where people come face to face with God. And they have these meetings with God. And God reveals part of himself to them. And those people are affected for a long time if not the rest of their life. I'd like to talk to you today about the holiness of God. We're trying to increase our knowledge and our understanding of the attributes of God, of who he is, why he does what he does, how he works and how he thinks. And the more familiar you and I are with him, the better we get to know God and the more likely we are to cooperate with what he's trying to do in our lives. I want to get to know God. I said this last week. I want to get to know God as much as I can on this earth so that he's not a stranger to me when I finally see him face to face. And so that's what we're trying to do through this this series in in the days ahead. I look at Abraham's meeting in Genesis chapter number 15. He offered a sacrifice to God, and God gave him very specific instructions on this sacrifice and he said, "Cleave this sacrifice in two, and lay part of it over here. Lay half of it over here, and lay half of it over here. And then, all of a sudden, as the night goes on, and this vision comes to Abraham, it's a God-inspired vision. God is walking in between the halves of his sacrifice, and God shows up. The Scripture says, as a smoking furnace and a burning lamp. And in his vision, Abraham recognizes." This is the presence of God. And he says that he was in a horror of great darkness. This this encounter with the holy God shook Abraham. His grandson Jacob lays down and takes a a rest. And in his rest, he has a dream, another God-inspired dream. And he sees a ladder that is going from earth to heaven. And the Bible says he sees in this dream, he sees these angels ascending and descending, going back and forth, up and down this ladder. And in Genesis 28, this is Jacob's response. He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. And he was afraid And said, how dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. That word dreadful in our our 21st century vernacular would be awesome. This is an awesome place. It's none other than the house of God. But he encountered a holy God and it shook him. Job spends about 36 or 37 chapters going back and he's questioning God all through his trial and he's arguing with his friends and debating with them. And Job asks over 100 questions throughout his book telling about his suffering and he's being challenged by his friends. Job asks 100 questions plus. And finally, God speaks to him. And when God does speak to him, All he does is remind Job of his greatness, of God's greatness and God's holiness. He doesn't ask a question or doesn't answer a question, does he? God just starts asking them. Job, where were you when I spoke the worlds into existence? Where were you when I created Behemoth, when I created Leviathan, when I just said words and everything appeared? Job, where were you and all that? All he did was remind Job of how great and how holy God is. And at the end of that, Job says this. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. What I'm saying through all of this is when when we get a true glimpse of God's holiness. When we understand what that word means in relation to God. Now, you and I are told to be holy. But when we talk about the word holy in relation to God, we'll have the same reactions that these men did. Jacob saying, uh, it says he was afraid. How awesome is this place? Job saying that he needs to repent in dust for questioning such a high and mighty God. The point of all this is that scripture records numerous examples of those Who, and I'll use this word, who were traumatically impacted by encountering the holiness of God. So God's holiness today. We're going to consider several different texts, but I'd like you to start out in Exodus chapter 15. If you're familiar with this chapter, it's titled, The Song of Moses. Moses gives us this song after Egypt is finally delivered from... Uh, they're delivered from the Egyptians and passed through the Red Sea. And I just want to read one verse out of it. And that's Exodus chapter 15 and verse number 11. Where in his song, Moses asks the question, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee? Glorious in holiness. Fearful in praises doing wonders, those wonders are unexplainable works. Who is like thee? who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods, who is like thee, and that phrase, glorious in holiness? I'd like to play off of Moses' uh, grammatical work here. He asks the questions. And so today what I'd like to do is I'd like to ask and answer three questions as it relates to God's holiness, and not just to to inform you, but to challenge you. Remember what the scripture says, that if all we get out of knowledge or out of the Bible is knowledge, knowledge just puffs up. It just makes us proud that we know it. We know this story or we know this verse or we know this principle. Knowledge just puffs up. What we need is that knowledge to impact how we live. What, What in my life needs to change Based upon what we're going to learn today about the holiness of God. So let's begin on three questions and three, hopefully answering these three questions. And we'll, we'll conclude. The third question is this. How do we respond to the holiness of God? What, what do I do with the fact that God is holy? What, what do I do with that? Let's pray and ask God to help our understanding today, can we? Lord, we come into your presence And as best we know how, uh, we come humbly and boldly at the same time. You've invited us here. And we recognize today your greatness. And, Lord, we're learning about it. We're being reminded of it. And today we're talking about the holiness that marks you. And, Lord, there's no darkness in you. There's nothing that hints at evil. There's no ill intent. You are a 100% holy and righteous God. And we're not. Job said he had to repent in dust and ashes. And, and Peter confessed that he was a sinful man. And, Lord, we know that we're not worthy to be in your presence. We're only here because of the, the grace that you've extended to us. And the fact that you've given us a Savior um, and put us in Christ. So help our understanding today. Help our church family. And, Lord, I, you know my heart for this series we all need a fresh view of you because the world we're living in is growing darker and darker and there's a lot of confusion and Lord, your, your glory, your greatness, your uniqueness as the only true God is what's going to set us apart and give us what we need to, to get through this life. So I pray for every person here today. Most, I'm sure, are saved. They're your children. Some may not be saved. Maybe they've never accepted Jesus Christ. And, Lord, I pray that whatever your work is in my heart today and in the heart of those who are here or joining us online, I pray it's accomplished. We want to cooperate with your Holy Spirit. We don't want to, uh, we don't want to resist him. And so whatever you desire to do in our hearts through your word and through your spirit today, God, we ask that you do it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Three questions. Here's the first one. What? Is God's holiness? What is it? What are we talking about? We use that word holy a lot, don't we? Especially in, in churchianity. Uh, we use holy and holiness uh, a lot. Let's talk about this morning, what is God's holiness? And I'd like to describe his holiness or define it with from three different aspects. And the first one, again, I take the liberty that Dr. Manley does, makes. When he makes up words, I can do that too then. Um, He's my elder, so if he can do it, I can do it. So I don't know if this first one's a word or not, but it's what we're going with. God's holiness is his otherness. His otherness. Pastor, what do you mean by this great word that you probably just made up? He is completely different than everything and everyone else everywhere for all time. His otherness. You have this. It's the same. Then there's God. He is otherly. There's nothing. He asks a a question in the Bible. Who can you compare me to? There's nothing comparable. If you go to sell your house, the realtor is going to talk to you when setting the price of of your house for sale. They're going to talk to you about comps or comparables around you. Well, this house is about your size. Here's what it sold for last month. There's nothing that you can compare God to. It is his otherness. He is entirely different. And let let me say this. Every attribute going forward that we talk about with God, this will be something for you to remember. If we talk about God's goodness, there is nothing for you and I to compare God's goodness to. If we talk about his, his omnipotence, there is nothing in the world or in the universe to compare God's omnipotence to. And when it comes to his holiness, we have nothing that we can compare it to. That, that word holy, the Hebrew word literally means to cut away. It's cut apart and separated, it, it's not attached to. God is, can I say it like this? God is a cut above everything that is. It's his otherness. His holiness sets him apart from anything that you or I or Moses would compare him to. Moses asks this question. He says, who is like unto thee? And the implied answer is no one. This this, This is the ultimate rhetorical question. God, who is like you? The answer is absolutely no one. In 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 1, a woman named Hannah is praying to God. And she says, there is none holy as the Lord. None. There's, there's no comparable. We can talk about holy saints. We can talk about righteous men or righteous women. But we cannot compare anyone to the holiness of God, He is completely and utterly different than every other being. So that's what I mean by his otherness. In holiness, there's no one to compare him to. You might know a person. And that person, you just can't find anything wrong with them. They're just, let's use Daniel. Can we use Daniel in the, in the Old Testament for that? He was put under the scrutiny of several rival uh, uh, government officials... And they, they were set out to nail Daniel to the wall. They, they were going to get him. They were going to catch him in some trap. They were going to get him to say the wrong thing or find some hypocrisy in him. And the Bible says this. They couldn't. They couldn't find anything wrong with him. He was the epitome of what Paul says in the New Testament, pleasing to God and pleasing to men. He, they just couldn't find anything wrong. You know the, You remember the only accusation they had against him. He's praised all the time to that God of his. That's the only thing. I would say, wouldn't you? Daniel, we would define then as a holy man. But you can't compare him to God. God is in his holiness, he is a completely different category. He's in a category all by himself. Every once in a while in Scripture, you and I get to peer into the throne room of God, don't we? In Isaiah chapter 6, we we talked about that. And Isaiah looks in, he did, remember Isaiah 6, 1, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he got a glimpse of these beings only found in Isaiah 6 by name called seraphim. They were interesting creatures. They had six wings and they fly around the throne of God. And some of the seraphim for all of eternity, their assignment is to encircle God's throne. And all they do is cry out, holy, holy, holy. Holy. That's their job, is to attribute holiness <clears throat> to God. We see that in that throne room. We don't get to look into that throne room very often. And we may try to imagine what it was that Isaiah saw. But no matter how much we try, we're not going to be able to comprehend what it means to be a thrice holy God. It's his otherness. It's, it's just a completely different level. Daniel was a good guy. But if we're talking about holiness, then we, we, we have to look to God. This is his, his holiness in his otherness. Is that all right? That makes sense? Nobody like him in holiness. The second thing, we talk about that holiness is the beauty of God. Holiness is the beauty of God. God created a, a beautiful world, a beautiful universe. When you look into some of those pictures that we get back from space, like the Hubble, uh, the, the Hubble telescope and some of the other things, it's, it's pretty magnificent when you get uh, a non-blurry picture of the universe. They're incredible. Well, the reason that we see such beauty in creation is because God himself is beauty. That phrase, glorious in holiness, there in Exodus chapter 15 and verse number 11, that word glorious, we would refer to as it being majestic or splendorous. It's, it's, it's beauty on steroids. How's that? It's indescribable. This is an amazing thing that the scripture says in Psalm 96.9 that we are to worship the Lord, listen to that phrase, in the beauty of of holiness. Holiness is not just the otherness of God but it is, it is His beauty, beauty, majesty, glory, splendor. All of these things speak to absolute perfection. His perfection, His holiness is absolutely beautiful. Now in one way, the holiness of God can be terrifying. You can read that in scripture where God's revelation of himself terrified people. But in another way, his his holiness is a beautiful reality. It arrests our attention. I have a feeling, and I don't know this, I can't base this on scripture, so you're getting Mark Campbell's opinion right now, but I have a feeling we will be breathless when we see God for the first time in heaven. I think the beauty is incomprehensible. I think heaven's probably like that, but, but the glory of God himself even more so. And the scripture says this, that God's holiness adds to his beauty. So there's the, his otherness, that is his holiness. His beauty pertains to his holiness. But the one that you and I are most familiar with, the idea that you and I are most familiar with when we talk about the holiness of God, it's the purity, isn't it, of God. We think of the, the, the purity of God, his moral and his righteous uprightness. There's just absolutely nothing there that is that is uh, less than perfect. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 3, the prophet says this, speaking to God, thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity, the purity of God. There are two main images. When we talk about God in the scripture, there are two main images that come up fairly frequently. One is fire and the other is light. In describing God, in fact, when when, um, uh, when Abraham was dealing with that vision that he had of where he had, he had laid out these sacrifices, then he had a vision of God moving among them. It was a, it was a furnace that he saw. Fire and light seem to be the things that show up Mostly. Hebrews 12, 29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. Do you remember that when we, as Christians, one day we're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ? And we will be tried there, the Bible says, yet we'll be tried there by fire. Everything that burns up is wood, hay, stubble. It's the temporary, non eternal works that we did, the fluff. It just burns away. What's left? Gold silver, precious stones. It's the holiness is revealed by fire. God comes across there as a fire. It also says that he is light, the brightness of his holiness. You remember, uh, again, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we go there because it's, it's the only earthly time we get to see this, is when Jesus revealed himself and the Bible says the light was brilliant, so much so that, that, that uh, Peter and James and John fell to the ground. When Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus, he's knocked off his horse or whatever he was riding by the light of Jesus Christ. The fire and the light, his purity. When we think of light, we think of the, absolute, the, the absence rather of darkness. Fire is going to burn away all that is not, it's not real. The wood, hay, and stubble, they're going to burn away. You can think of any moral quality that we relate to God. His goodness, his beauty, his power, his justice, his mercy, his honesty, his faithfulness. In every one of those things, he's absolutely pure. He's holy. Now, there are a lot of people in this room today that are merciful, But your your mercy is not perfect. There are some good people in this room today. There are some faithful men and women of God today in this room. But your faithfulness is is not perfect. Those of you that are good folks, your goodness is not perfect. But in every attribute of God, you find this characteristic. Purity. He's absolutely perfect. Pure And when people in the Bible come into his presence and they encountered his holiness, they just weren't the same after that. Isaiah was radically changed after Isaiah chapter 6. He saw God in his holiness. This is, this is God's holiness. What is it? It's his otherness. It's, his, incompar- it's his, his incomparability. It's his beauty. It's his purity. When you think of the holiness of God... Think of those three things, his otherness, his beauty, and his purity. Second question is, where do we see it? Where do we see the holiness of God? Well, first of all, you see it in the Old Testament appearances of God. We've mentioned that one there in Isaiah chapter 6. In fact, we're talking about it a lot. You want to just turn over there to Isaiah chapter number 6? And let's just read those first five verses and be reminded of that context. All right, Isaiah chapter six verse one: In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train, his robe filled the temple. <clears throat> Above it, the throne stood stood the seraphim's. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah's response, verse number five. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He sees these seraphim here, and he hears them crying. And when Isaiah, who I think is a righteous man, he's this Old Testament prophet. When he sees the Lord like this, the Bible says he's left quaking in his boots. It says, woe is me, for I am undone. That, that word, undone, it's very picturesque. Imagine, um, what, what don't you do when you see a, a pulled string on your wife's sweater, men? What don't you do? Don't pull that string. You pull that, th- you pull that string, and it may completely unravel. That word, undone, is our English word, unraveled. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and I saw these seraphim, and they're proclaiming his holiness, and I am completely unraveled at what I see. He's undone. We see the holiness of God when people see him here in the Old Testament. That's, that, that's what happened all the time. We should feel that unworthiness. He, he saw God, and he said, woe is me. You and I should feel that same unworthiness when we come into God's presence. We're only there because of his grace and his son. We're only there because of his grace and his son. We ought to sense this unworthiness. Shame on us for coming into the presence of God in a worship service or in our prayer closet and acting like it's just the next meeting we have on our day. We're coming into the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. It ought to be a completely different heart in us. And that was Isaiah's heart. I, I'm fallen. I am unworthy to be in your presence. I'm undone. I'm unraveled. And yet here's the, here's the thing. You're invited to be here. You and I are invited into the presence of God. Unworthy to be there? Yes. Sometimes trembling? Yes. But invited by God to come into his presence. This thrice holy God wants fellowship with me. With the likes of me. He invites me into his presence. He invites you into his presence. You see it in the Old Testament appearance. That's where you see the holiness of God. You see it somewhere else. You also see it in God's law. In God's law. You can turn there if you'd like, but Romans chapter 7 and verse 12 says this. This is New Testament now. This is church age that we're living in. Listen to what Paul said. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Some of the old writers, especially in the Puritans and pre-Puritan age, some of those writers called the law the transcript of God's character. The law is holy. Why do we have this whole Old Testament system of sacrifice? Why this elaborate system of of animal sacrifices and and priests and tabernacles and temples and holy days and the day of atonement, all of these festivals that they had, why is the color of every thread in the Old Testament tabernacle or temple, why is the color of the thread specified? Is all that legalism? No. It's because that was That was God's way of making the point that to dwell with him, there are conditions. You and I are to be holy if we're going to come into the presence of God. That's what the scripture says. We're to be holy if we come into his presence. We come before him with reverence, with awe. Atonement had to be made on the day of atonement that... uh, uh, that high priest of Israel, he couldn't just stroll willy-nilly into the Holy of Holies and do what he was going to do. There was atonement that had to be made, and it was prescribed by God. There were things that had to be done in order for God's people to have a relationship with him. He's a holy, he's a holy God. There had to be a way for sinners to be purified in order for a sinner to fellowship with God. That's why the veil in the temple wasn't rent until our sins were fully paid for. Until those sins were fully addressed, which none of the Old Testament system did. Until those sins were fully paid for, God left that veil intact. But once Christ was crucified and sins were addressed, God says, now we can have a relationship. The, The law... Is holy. We can see the holiness of God. Go back and, and it's not fun reading, but it's detailed and it's it's instructive. Go back and read the book of Leviticus. Why is God so concerned about this detail and that detail? We're talking about such small things, some of which the people of Israel were never going to see. Do you know that the average Jew never saw? The Ark of the Covenant never saw the golden candlestick. Never saw the little uh, the the gold altar, the altar of incense that was in the holy place. The average Jew never saw those things; they were covered. God was in, he, he was insistent on these things. Why? He's making a point. There's a holiness to be protected. These things had all been sanctified, they had been set apart for the holy worship of God. God's holiness is seen in his Old Testament appearance. It's also seen in God's law. His holiness is also seen in God's works. We see his holiness in the works. Psalm 145 and verse number 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Now before you just write that off, that means when you were diagnosed with cancer, God was holy in that work. When your loved one was taken by God's design, that was a holy work. Because Psalm 145, 17 is careful to say, righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Did my loved one die because God somehow lost control? No, God was at work. Then he's still holy in that. You, You see what I'm saying? He's holy in all of his works. When you see the work of God, you are looking at something that reflects his holiness. He's holy in all of his works. Moses' song here in Exodus chapter 15 it's the, the whole song is a praise song celebrating God's triumph over Egypt. That triumph included the death of hundreds, if not thousands, of Egyptians, Egyptian soldiers. And he's celebrating God in all of that. In, in creation, you remember Genesis chapter number 1? What did God say at the end of his workday? Every day at the end of his workday for six days, what did he say? Oh, this is good. Ah, oh, the Lord saw that it was good. Why? All of His works are like that. And remember, if God's doing it, and we're using the word "good," it's more than me saying. It's more than me saying a work that Brother Al did on a car, a body work that he does on a car, and go up and say, "Boy, he did a good job on that." But when God says His work of creation is good, that word "good" means with absolutely without flaw, error, anything. It's perfectly good. All his works are holy. Arthur Pink said this, his book, The Attributes of God, good book. Pink said, nothing but that which is excellent proceeds from God. Holiness is the rule of every one of his actions. His holiness is seen in his works. So take comfort that when God is working on your behalf, church, he's doing a holy work in you. You may not like the work he's doing. I may not care for the work he's doing. But it's a holy work that he's doing because his works reflect his holiness. Lastly, where do we see his works? We see his works in Christ and the cross. We see his holiness, rather. Where do we see his holiness? We see it in Christ and the cross. Everything about Jesus' life was marked by holiness. Even from before he was born. And this, we don't... We don't say this about women who are carrying babies. We wouldn't say it like this today. But in the King James Bible, when the angel is talking to Mary, pre-Jesus' birth, and he describes Jesus like this. Therefore, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, if I were talking to a woman who's expecting today, I wouldn't talk to her about the thing in her womb. We don't use that word, but the angel comes to Mary and, and, and marks, marks that preborn baby with the adjective holy. When you see Jesus Christ, you are looking at the holiness of God. Even before he was born, he was, he was called holy. He comes into the synagogue one day in Luke chapter 4, and there's a, there's a man in the synagogue, which is interesting all by itself. He's he's in the synagogue, and this man is demon-possessed. And the man approaches Jesus. And that demon in that man comes to Jesus and says, I know thee who thou art, thou holy one of God. Even the demon knows. I see the holiness of God in Jesus. He was called holy before he was born. He's called holy here. He's holy. Don't be fooled by the fact that he was a man. He looked just like every other man, but he wasn't like every other man. He was the holiness of God personified. John Gill, in his exposition of the scripture, says it like this. Jesus was made, keep in mind, he he lived back in the 1600s, 1700s. John Gill said, Jesus was made like unto us, yet without sin. He looked like a sinner, but was not one. He was charged and treated as such, but was perfectly holy and free from all sin. He was essentially and infinitely holy as God. And as man, he was holy in his conception and in his birth. He was filled with the Holy Ghost and holy in his life and in his death. Sinclair Ferguson said that we see the holiness of God in human form when we look at Jesus Christ simultaneously God and man, perfectly holy in all things. And the holiness of God is especially seen in the cross of Jesus. Pastor, how is that true? Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross, the question that he asked the Father? Do you remember the question he asked? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There is a Messianic psalm, Psalm number 22, and it opens with those very words, Psalm 22, 1. It's pointing, back in David's day, this psalm is pointing us to Calvary already. In verse number 1, it asks that question, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And two verses later, in verse number 3, Psalm 22, 3, two verses later, the psalmist writes, but thou art holy Yes, the cross is coming. Yes, Messiah is going to the cross. But even in the cross, God, thou art holy. Holiness tied to the cross of Jesus Christ. You want to see the holiness of God? Look at his son hanging on the cross. God's revealed that there. Arthur, Pete. Arthur Pink in that same book on the attributes said, Wondrously and yet most solemnly does the atonement display God's infinite holiness and his abhorrence of sin. Why is God's holiness revealed there? This is how much he hates sin. Habakkuk said you can't even look on sin. That's why God forsook Jesus at Calvary. That's why his face was turned away. Remember what Habakkuk said? But thou art of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. Can't look on it. The holiness of God is displayed at the cross. And and the, the cross, we could say it like this the cross is a terrible reminder of the holiness of God. You see it there. What is God's holiness? It's his otherness, his beauty, and his purity. Where can we see God's holiness? We see it in His Old Testament appearances. We see it in the law. We see it in Jesus. We see it in God's works. We see it at Calvary. Closing this morning with this third question: How should we respond to God's holiness, Pastor? I agree with what you're saying. And some of what you're saying, Pastor, boy, it just it makes my skin, the hair of my skin, stand up. It does mine. When we start to get a view of the holiness of God, it, it does something to it, and it should do something to you but how do I respond to that? We don't want to just be hearers of the word this morning. We want to be doers of the word. How should we respond to God's holiness? The first way is this, by trusting in the sanctifying death of Jesus. That's how you respond to God's holiness. You might be here today and you've never been saved. What do you mean by saved, Pastor? I mean that there's never been a specific time when you have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, you say, well, I'm not a sinner. Bad news for you. You are. Amen. I am. The person sitting next to, behind, and in front of you, they're all sinners. You this morning are surrounded by sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. Why well, I haven't killed anybody. You remember Ray Comfort's little test for that? You ever told a lie? That makes you a liar. You ever lusted after somebody? Scripture says to do that in your heart, you've committed adultery in the heart. Now you're an adulterer. You remember his old test? He makes you feel real good about yourself, doesn't he? He said, you ever hated anybody? Well, yeah. Well, if you hated somebody, Jesus said that that's like the sin of murder. And then Ray Comfort says, so you're a lying, adultering, a, a, a lying, murderous adulterer in heart. Nobody can say I'm, I'm not a sinner. No one gets to say that. I can respond to the holiness of God, though, by trusting in the sanctifying death of Jesus Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 that Christ is our sanctification. That is a big word. That word sanctification, there's two aspects of it in scripture. One is your positional sanctification. That means you're either in Adam, like you were born, or you're in Christ. When you're saved, you are set. You are pulled apart from being in Adam, made to be in Christ. We trust in the sanctifying death of Jesus and we're saved. We can have a relationship with God that we are not innately born with. We are all the creation of God. We are not all the children of God. The Hindu or the Muslim or the Jehovah's Witness is not a child of God. He's the creation of God because God made us all. He's not a child of God. We have to be born into that family. And there's only one way to do that. And that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been saved, and Paul says now you are in Christ, you are being sanctified. Uh, You are being sanctified. You've been sanctified by being set apart for God, but you're in the process of it. If you're not saved this morning, trust in the sanctifying death of Jesus. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying he died to pay for your sins. You can be saved. The only way to have a relationship with God is if you trust his holy son. Second thing. By pursuing holiness in the power of the Spirit. Pursuing holiness in the power of the Spirit. Now, this is where that positional sanctification or that practical sanctification comes in. Positional sanctification took place when I got saved. I changed my position. I was unsaved. Now I'm saved. My position has changed. But then there's this practical idea of, of sanctification or being made more like Jesus. Repeatedly in the scripture, you can finish this, you can finish this sentence probably. Be ye holy, for I am holy. That's what scripture says, right? Repeatedly, Old Testament or New Testament, we're told to be holy because God's holy. Leviticus chapter eleven, chapter nineteen, chapter 20, twenty, first Peter chapter one. Hebrew 12, Hebrews 12, chapter 14, says to, we, are, we are to follow or pursue holiness. How do, we, how do we do that? We continually surrender ourselves to Christ. And we, when he says, be ye holy, for I am holy, he's not telling us to be holy as he is holy. Because you can't be. And I can't be. Not in my practice. Positionally, I can be. Positionally, I stand perfect before Christ today. But in my day-to-day living, I can't be perfect. But I'm to pursue holiness. I'm to follow it. It's to be my goal. My everyday, my everyday living should be, I'd like to be holier today than I was yesterday. I want to be holier today on February 4th, 2024, than I was on February 4th, 2023. I'm to pursue holiness I'm to be growing in this holiness and why? Because he's holy. be ye holy for or because I am holy. There ought to be a, a growth there, this practical this this practical sanctification, this growth in holiness <clears throat> it is an ongoing purifying process that God does in me day after day. He does it in my heart, He does it in my mind, and ultimately, my lifestyle is going to change because of those two things. I ought to be growing. You ought to be more like Jesus today than you were last week, last month, last year. How do we respond to it? By following after, by pursuing holiness. And you have to do that, being filled with the Spirit, because in your heart and in my heart, we don't want to do that we don't want to pursue god we we do this second corinthian or second thessalonians 2:13 says that this is a process it's called the sanctification of the spirit it's his work in us you remember the fruit of the spirit in galatians chapter 5 the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace and it goes on it lists nine aspects of the fruit of the spirit that's not something you work to improve The fruit naturally grows in you by the inward working of the Holy Spirit. As you yield yourself to him, he increases your love for people. He increases your joy. He increases your peace. He increases all that fruit. It's not the fruit of Mark Campbell's work. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's the process of sanctification. That's how we pursue holiness. We we have this This concept of the holiness of God. And it ought to be intimidating. His holiness ought to intimidate us. There ought to be a reverent fear there. But there should also be something in us that says, I want to be more like that and less like this. To encounter such a God would be traumatizing apart from Jesus Christ. To encounter a holy God. Can you imagine that? A being that is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Can do anything, knows everything, and is everywhere so you can't hide. Can you imagine coming into the presence of a God like that without Jesus Christ? I think at the great white throne judgment, it's going to be the most fearful day in the history of the human race because they're coming into the presence of a holy God who has every right and will exercise that right to judge them for eternity and there's nothing they can do about it. That will be fearful, but to come into the presence of God at the judgment seat of Christ knowing he's a holy God, that he's omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, knowing that he can do anything he desires to do. I'm coming on the grounds of my relationship with his only begotten, beloved son. I've got the golden ticket to come into the presence of God. It's Jesus Christ. Coming into his presence with Jesus Christ, I can come, the Bible says, boldly, confidently. I can be here because I'm with Jesus. So it's time for a heart examination this morning. So you got to give yourself a heart exam. As you consider the holiness of God, I want you to settle this in your mind. Now, whatever else might be distracting you, if you're sitting next to someone who's distracting you, Move. I want, you to, I want you to ask yourself this question. Where is your character not like God's character? God's character is that of holiness. My ultimate goal, according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, 29 is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So ask yourself this where am I not? Like Jesus Christ. Where is the light of God's holiness exposing my regular unholiness? Now all of us sin every day. I'm I'm talking about that habitual sin that you keep coming back to. That area of your heart that is not surrendered to God. God, I'll give you this and I'll give you this and I'll give you that. But I'm not giving you this relationship. I'm not giving you this avenue of my time. Where are you not like God? You can expand that. Where is your thought life not like God's? Where is your speech not like God's? The holiness of God is to be my model. I'll never be that perfect, but it's to be my model. So wherever that area is, wherever that area in your character is not like God, you and I ought to humble ourselves, repent of that, and then ask God to fill us with his spirit and give us the victory over that in our lives. There are certain things that we do where, for lack of a better way of putting it, we're just telling God no. No. Well, that didn't last very long in our house with kids. And it doesn't last very long with God. He's not going gonna to tolerate disobedience in his children. He's going to chasten me for that. He's going to chasten you for that. You know why? Because he loves you. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Where are you not like God in his character? Ask yourself that question and then see what God would have you to change in your life so that you're more like him. Would you stand with your heads bowed this morning? Father, we come into your presence and we recognize again and we're reminded again of your absolute holiness. There is nothing in your holiness that resembles anything in the universe. You are are above everything. And, Lord, we can't be like you in our daily lives. Thank you for making our hearts perfect before you. And seeing us the way you see Jesus, so that when we die, we go to heaven. But Lord, in my daily living, I'm not like you as much as I should be. And that may be the confession of every person here. Some are here today, Lord. I know they're probably here and not saved. And they need to respond to your holiness today by coming and confessing their sin and asking Jesus to be their savior. There are Christians in here today, Lord, who in areas of their life, they're just telling you no. They're not going They're not going to obey in this area or that area. Or maybe they're beginning to identify areas, Lord, where they're not like you and they want to be. I pray that you would give each of us humble hearts today, help us to swallow pride and to kneel before you and say, Lord, you can have everything in me. I don't know how much time any of us, God, you've left us, you're, you're leaving us on this planet for, but... Whatever time we have left, may we live our lives in such a way that we reflect the holiness that you've revealed to us. Lord, you're you're a holy God, and we want to be like you. Use your word today to shape not just our thinking, but also our actions, I pray in your name. Amen. Would you hold your head bowed for just a moment? I want to give you an opportunity to respond.